Let's all say it together, class. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Hey folks, this is Rich Outfield. Near the end of this episode, I told myself, dude, you need to put a humdinger of a warning at the beginning of this show. So, so I'm warning. There's a content warning, and then there's a TMI warning, and then there's a I'm going to say things that may not be agreeable to you warning. So heads up. Cue uh, Harvey Dent right there. Okay, fine. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. What would you do? If I shine out of tune, would you turn round and walk out on me? Lend me your ear and I'll sing you a song. I'll try hard not to sing out of key. Hello folks, this is Rish Outfield and this is the Rish Outcast. I want to give you a little disclaimer here at the beginning. Probably unnecessary. You know me. This can't be your first episode that you're listening to. If it is, well, welcome. Let's start somewhere else. I uh, watched a YouTube video today about writing, and it was a lovely young girl with perfect lighting, and she'd done her hair and her makeup, and the points that she made were really salient and uh, insightful and memorable. And then at the end, she said, you know, I have a Patreon and that's where you need to go to really communicate with me one-on-one and get the good stuff. And uh, I thought, boy, I, 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 I'm not like this. I can't measure up to this. If this is what my competition is, so to speak, boy, I'm not uh, in the same league as this person. And nevertheless, I still have a couple of supporters on Patreon that are, are just, they're, they're always supportive and enthusiastic about the things that I put up. And uh, I think it's fair to say I would not be recording this right now if I hadn't watched that YouTube video. As dejected as it made me about my own work. Anyway, I said, uh, here's a warning. I'm, I'm going to share with you a story that I wrote a number of years ago called Hero Worship. It's a story that I wrote based on an interaction that I had when I moved to L.A. of encountering, you know, one of the celebrities that I, I, I really admired. And um, I've never shared the story with anybody but Big Anklevich. Uh, it, I've always considered it to be pretty weak. So I'll present it now, but, but don't be surprised if I bring in a classroom of children at the end. So there you go. Hero Worship by Rish Outfield. I was one of the many who came to Los Angeles to pursue their dream. Ever since I was a boy, I pictured myself on the silver screen, acting and fighting and courtroom drama-ing and kissing the ladies and bantering with the best of them. As a child, 
I first knew I wanted to be an actor when I saw Everett Clark in Reap What You Sow. Though he got robbed on the Oscar nomination that year, the performance was not lost on me. I saw that with my mom at the local second-run theater and knew that's what I wanted to do, what I wanted to be. I persuaded my folks to let me do children's theater and got the juicy parts in school plays, if Charlie Brown or Prince Charming or even in the neighborhood of Juicy. I took drama classes in high school, getting to play Falstaff in my senior production of Henry IV. Took film and acting classes in college, playing both Iago in Macbeth and Felix in The Odd Couple. I starred in a crappy student feature about a young guy who takes his office building hostage when they discontinue Casual Friday. It's on YouTube. If you're morbidly curious, do a search for Casual Fit. Through everything, I had an absolute ball, doing what I loved. I graduated with a Bachelor's of Arts and began packing the next day. Hollywood was in my cards. It was hard at first. I didn't have an agent. Everything cost so much money. I didn't know a soul in town. And the competition was fierce. I had told myself not to expect instant success, after all, Everett Clark didn't get his big break until he was almost 30. But as my savings diminished and work stayed scarce, I have to admit that I started to wonder. I had been an extra 14 times, sat in an audience 10 times, and had a line in a low-budget action movie that ended up getting cut the day of filming. Rent was high. Gas was expensive and my little car was making a rattling noise when it pulled to a stop. I was getting depressed, frustrated, and scared. It was a weekday evening that was more on the depressed side, the perfect L.A. weather unnoticed around me. I was taking a walk through Westwood Village, where the young and happy hang out, doing some thinking, when I passed a little bar on Gailey, a well-dressed couple were stepping out a few feet away, and they caught my attention by saying, Everett Clark. Of course, I stopped to eavesdrop on their conversation. Yeah, that's one to tell the grandkids about, the woman said dryly. The man made a half chuckle. What a loser. The conversing couple walked away, but I didn't. I needed to use a phone to call my work line anyway, so I went into the bar. It was somewhat busy, and a jabbering Hispanic man was at the one payphone that wasn't out of order, so I turned around again. I was thirsty, but I was alone, and I couldn't justify a $7 drink on a non-special occasion. I was on my way to the door when I saw him. I stopped in my tracks. There was Everett J. Clark himself. My hero. I couldn't believe it. Here I was. Here it was. The moment I'd imagined since I was a small, wide-eyed kid in the suburbs of Lincoln, Nebraska. Over the years, I had thought about what I would say to my idol, how I could best express my gratitude and respect, and the actual moment was upon me. I took a somnambulant step in his direction. Everett Clark was sitting by himself in a darkened booth, massaging a bottle of something. 
As I neared him, I noticed something distressing. He looked like metal shavings in a microwave. I was about to move forward again when a wafer-thin Japanese student moved to the booth, asking Clark in hushed tones for a signed name. The actor nodded as deliberately as Mr. Ed, taking the pen from the girl and letting her lay her notebook in front of him. He scrawled something on the page and immediately spilled his drink on it. Clark was drunk. Or stoned. Or both. The girl said something in Japanese, and the movie star laughed. Loud. She moved away, her cheerful body language all gone now. A moment later, Clark uprighted his now empty glass and gazed at it, stupidly. Suddenly, I didn't want to be there. What could I say right now? This wasn't the right time. It wasn't a good moment. There could only be negative consequences in approaching him now. I turned and walked out of the bar. It seemed chilly outside, even though that was impossible in Westwood, California. I swore under my breath, drawing a look from the two blonde men smoking by the door. I should have found another payphone, or just gone home and called from there. Yeah. I made it about a block before I stopped and turned around. How many years had I waited for a chance to shake my idol's hand? Long enough I hadn't gotten the hand job reference in Reap What You Sow. Long enough I'd still had my baby teeth. Yeah, it had been a long time. And how long would I have to wait to meet him again? I wasn't hopelessly naive. I knew my hero wasn't perfect. He'd been divorced twice in the last decade. His last three films had made less than he was paid to do one of them. I couldn't take it personally that I was seeing him in that condition. After all, he still signed the Japanese girl an autograph. He might appreciate a handshake from a genuine fan. I went back up gaily toward the bar. Two storefronts over, I passed someone along the sidewalk and was about to go into the bar again when I realized that someone was Clark. I turned around. The man could barely walk. A college kid was turning off the alarm on his gigantic SUV over where Clark was passing. Hey, Dr. Dakota, he shouted. Clark didn't respond, didn't even turn. I frowned at that. It was Professor Dakota. I hated it when people got it wrong. I followed my idol another block, getting more and more afraid of talking to him. You should just leave, a voice inside me advised. This is none of your business. This is not a memory you want to have. The man is clearly disturbed, and to disturb him further can only bring a negative end to this. Just go to your car and forget about it. Everett Clark stopped, looked around, and tried to go into the store by his side. It was a little camera shop and was closed up, dark inside. Clark rattled on the door handle, banged on the window, then felt around in his pockets for his keys. What is he doing? I wondered. But the truth was, Clark didn't know either. This became apparent within three seconds of watching him. He pulled out his car keys, 
looked at the lock on the door, then shook his head and put his keys back in his pocket. You should go home right now, the voice spoke up in my head. This is bad. This is a bad situation, and this could seriously scar you emotionally. This, in front of me, Everett Clark looked up at the sign announcing the name of the store, back at his keys, and up at the store again. He just stood there like he was in a trance. But what if I just left him there, standing like that? What if I went away and never said anything? Wouldn't I always regret that? It was a hard decision to make, but I had to make it. Clark stepped away from the store and onto the sidewalk, bumping into a little yellow BMW. Its alarm began to blare. Instead of leaving it alone, as anyone else would do, the movie star again fished around for his keys, trying to shut off the alarm. When that didn't work, he started to back away from the piercing sound, moving further into the street. He looked like a homeless person, but not the normal ones you give money to. He looked like one of the crazy ones you shrink away from on the sidewalk. I made my choice. I ran up to my idol and grabbed the sleeve of his coat. Mr. Clark, I said, leading him back to the sidewalk. Funkin' alarm, he mumbled and lightly pushed me away from him. I didn't do anything. Come onto the sidewalk, Mr. Clark, I heard myself say. It sounded far away, like this whole thing was a dream. Call me ever, the man slurred. He walked with me to the side of the road, tripping over the sidewalk. Luckily, I kept him from falling. In most of my imagined meetings with Clark, my idol had told me to call him ever. It was sort of funny, but I didn't feel like laughing about it. Though nothing had gotten on him, Clark began dusting off his pant legs and sleeves. He kept it up much longer than necessary. As I watched him, I realized he was imagining something there, swatting at invisible what's-its. Are you all right, Mr. Clark? I asked gently. I knew the answer, but I couldn't help myself. Huh? The man responded, looking at me as if for the first time. In fact, maybe it was. What's your name? Nate, I said. What do you want? Nothing. I... I... What could I say? I just want to help. Huh? Clark said again. He looked around him, apparently trying to place where he was. His grimace told me he didn't know. My car was parked in an alley a half block away. I'd lived in L.A. long enough to actually grin when I found the spot. It was close enough we could make it there without much trouble. I guess I sounded authoritative when I said, Look, just come with me. Because he did so without saying another word. We reached the little alley where my even littler vehicle was parked, and I left him outside it with a, Just a second. Everett Clark stopped on the sidewalk beside the alley and leaned against a dirty-looking storefront. I unlocked my car, climbed inside, and cleared the jack-in-the-box wrappers off the passenger seat, stuffing them in the back. I started up the engine, shifted into reverse, and pulled the car up to the intersection. Clark just stood there a moment, looking at nothing in particular. 
I rolled down my window. Mr. Clark! His gaze shifted to my general direction. Yeah. It's me, I said. Call me ever, he said again. I shifted into park and got out of the car, frowning a little bit. I came around and opened the passenger door for him. As he got in, a little voice told me, Watch out, he's going to puke in there. It struck me as funny. I wondered if I could sell a floor mat personally vomited on by Everett Clark on eBay. But as soon as it came to me, another voice told me he probably wouldn't puke. The man was on more than just booze tonight. Are you okay? I asked. Peachy, he said, his head against my dashboard. I closed the passenger door and went around again. Before I shifted into drive, I put on my seatbelt out of habit. I'm going to take you home. Is that all right? I asked him. From the dashboard, he made an affirmative sound. It took us a few minutes to get out of Westwood, and at the red light on Wilshire, I asked if I should turn right or left. He asked me what year my car was. Right or left, Mr. Clark? I asked again as the light was turning green. What year, Mr. Driver? Behind me, some asshole began laying on his horn. A 97. Left, then, he said. I turned left, and we drove down Wilshire for a minute, saying nothing. I broke the silence. You can turn right wherever you want, he said, and laughed. I didn't get it. Look, I, I just mean that... I'll tell you where to turn, he growled, then leaned back in the seat, groaning as if the effort had caused him considerable distress. We passed through another intersection, and I started to get nervous. I didn't know if I could trust him to tell me where to turn in time. What's the street, Mr. Clark? You call me Mr. Clark again, and one of us is getting out. He sounded like one of his characters, gruff, but always in the right. I felt a little weird about calling him ever. I wondered what would happen if I called him by his character name. Street Santa Monica, he said a minute later. Ah, I knew where that was. It was a major street exactly parallel to where we were now. Wait, Santa Monica doesn't connect with Wilshire. He shrugged. Sure it does. In my world, it doesn't, I thought, but didn't say. Someone steal your radio, he asked, and for a moment I thought someone might have. Then I remembered that I'd stuck the faceplate in the trunk when I'd parked. The one semi-friend I had made doing extra work had told me new Los Angelinos tend to lose their stereo within the first five months of moving here. No, I said. Silence reigned. I think he mentioned the radio because he noticed the quiet, too. I figured I should say something. After all, when else would I get this chance? Reap what you sow changed my life, I muttered nervously. Mine too, he said without much of a pause. I suppose you get that a lot. He paused longer this time. 
No. All right. I guessed I'd go ahead. I was seven years old. I, I looked up at the screen and I thought, that's a hero. That's a man I, I can look up to. And you, you are. I said what I'd meant to say for nearly two decades. Silence quickly filled the car again. I paused when I realized the man next to me might have passed out. Mr. Clark? Go on, the star mumbled. Then, and call me ever. When you played the sheriff in the Manitoban, I wanted to live in the Old West. He sighed, just a little one. That flopped. Fucking thing was supposed to revive the Western. I had heard that before, but you wouldn't know it by seeing the film. Well, it wasn't a good movie, I said. But you were good in it. Yeah, he said, and sounded like he had heard that before, too, and it was still a sore subject for him. Sorry, I said. I, I don't think it was your fault. Maybe. I don't know. A couple more quiet seconds went by. We were passed by a beautiful red Corvette convertible with its top down. I almost pointed it out to him when I realized he could probably buy five of those in each color. I found my hand reaching toward the radio again, even though I couldn't turn it on. Kid, Clark said suddenly and I thought of the time he'd called Matthew Broderick Kid at the People's Choice Awards and how much it seemed to irk him. I'm not a hero. Not really. I know that, I told him. But it hurt to say. Even the way he was right now, there was a confidence, a star quality radiating from the man like a fever. I'm a movie star, not a hero. Or maybe not even that anymore. His voice slurred a bit when he spoke, and every fifth or sixth word I didn't get, but he sounded the most lucid he had been since I met him. When I first got into the business, I knew who my friends were. I knew who I was. Now I'm Everett J. Clark, motion picture star and soon-to-be unemployed celebrity. Nobody wants to be my friend anymore. Not for me. I remember when a woman would sleep with me for love, not because of me make a good story or I might buy her something nice. It's sad how long ago that's been. I was supposed to say something now. But what? At least women will sleep with you? Or I'm sure that's not true. He seemed to tire of waiting for me to answer and continued to talk on his own. What's your name, kid? Nate, I told him again. Famous funny Nate. I wanted him more than anything when I was a starving actor. Then when I got it, I hated the fucking thing. I tried to push it away like a dog that keeps trying to lick you, you know? I guess. Now, it's on its way out. Hell, maybe already gone. 
I'm starting to miss it again. I miss the way I felt when I'd read a script and I knew it was great and it came to me first because of the strength of my name. Now my scripts have three or four names crossed out on them before they even come to me. I got this piece of shit old man goes back to high school job offered to me and Saul actually told me to take it. Saul who? I asked, as if it mattered. My agent, Clark said and yawned, rubbing his eyes. This kid right out of film school wrote the part for me in his no-budget assassination of the president thing, and I almost signed up on it for scale. He chuckled. Wasn't even scale, really. I pay more than that for alimony every month. Sorry. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it would be fun to work with kids again. It could be. I said, thinking of the student films I had worked on. Is it a good script? I don't know, he muttered. Who cares, really? I was supposed to gain weight for it, like Hanks did in the Island movie. I nodded, though Tom Hanks had actually lost weight for Castaway. I thought I'd ask him if it was hard to gain or lose weight for a film, whether it messed you up when the shoot was over. But he said... I feel old, and made a sound, a small, sad, desperate little sound, like a grandfather waking from a particularly bad nightmare and finding himself alone in his house. It was an awful sound. I wished I could think of what to say, something brilliant, something heartfelt, something inspired. I opened my mouth. You're not old came out. That was pathetic. It wasn't convincing even to me. I tried again. You, you're always going to be young. Fifty years from now, somebody will pop in a DVD or whatever they have then, and you'll be 30 again without a line on your face or a a, a spot on you or, or anything else. This wasn't working. Come on. Come on. What? He asked me, looking at me like he had just realized I was there. I I mean... I tried one last time. What I mean to say is, you are immortal. You you will never die. Your great-great-grandchildren will know what you looked like when you did Band-Aid on a bullet wound or, or, or reap. Even if you never made another movie again, you'll live forever. Always be a star, a hero. I stopped talking. Okay, that wasn't great, but it was all right. He said something that sounded like, yeah, but I didn't get it. So I said, you inspired me and I was just a kid. Every day, another kid is born that you could inspire. He said nothing. Damn, I should have said a kid that you will inspire. That would have been better. Oh, well, I'd given it a shot. Turn left, he said, and pointed up at the street sign connected to the red lights we were stopped at before. Santa Monica Boulevard. So it did connect with Wilshire. When the light changed, I turned 
and we drove through Beverly Hills. He pointed to a dimly lit street lined with palm trees, and I took that as, take another left. The houses here were much too big, much too expensive, beyond the dreams of avarice. I didn't really like this neighborhood for some reason. Anything else? Clark asked. And this time, his words weren't slurring much at all. I thought about it. I memorized the speech you gave in Something in the Water about one right decision wiping away a lifetime of bad ones, I said at last. How being at the wrong place at the wrong time can never be as important as being at the right place at the right time. I know, I memorized it too, he said with a snort. I didn't let that phase me. I, I used it as an audition piece and to ask a girl to prom. Did she go with you? I smiled. It was my first tonight. She did. That was all one take, Clark told me, with a two-camera setup. I didn't know that, I said, wondering why I never heard that before. Does that happen a lot? Never, he said. Then he made an ugly throat-clearing noise and shifted on the seat. I was about to say more when he leaned forward suddenly. Are you okay? Shh, he said, and I obeyed. A moment later, he said, Turn up here. Right or left? I don't care. Left. We pulled into another Beverly Street, where the houses were like estates. Everything looked very coiffed and clean. The guest houses were nicer than what I had grown up in. 1432, he said. What? I asked, then noticed the house numbers. 1432 was just up ahead. There was a huge driveway leading up to the house, blocked off by a black iron gate. The gate was closed. Oh, Clark muttered. The opener's in my car. What should I... Push the button, he said. There was a speaker box right off the street. I rolled my window down and looked at it. There were two little brass buttons. I pushed one of them. Then, when nothing happened, I pushed the other. I noticed there was a camera pointed down at us. A little red light was glowing on it, but I didn't know if it had just turned on or not. The house was huge. Only two stories, but several rooms long, and reminded me of an Ivy League school building. I realized, with a warm feeling, that it was the same shade of red brick as my little house back home had been. After a second, a voice came through the speaker. It wasn't tinny or distorted, but came through clear and crisp. May I help you? It sounded like an old woman on the phone. She also sounded tired. Virginia, my passenger muttered. V Virginia? I asked, though I didn't know why. Yes, she asked, a little more awake. I'm here with Mr. Clark. He's... he's kind of... This was awkward. Are you a taxi? Asked the woman. No, I, I just... I began, 
<clears throat> then cleared my throat. I, I'm a fan. Whoopee, she said, and it was probably the most cynical word I had ever heard. Next to me, Everett Clark laughed, loud and unashamed. It was a familiar sound. It made me smile again. Before us, the gate began sliding open. Even though my window was down and there was no stereo, I couldn't hear it make a sound. I drove through the entrance and into the driveway. Under the tires, I could hear the pattern of the cobblestones. There was a child's scooter sitting on its kickstand right off the grass. I expected someone to be waiting for us there, a security guard or maybe a butler. But the door was closed and no one was around, though two bright halogens had gone on when we'd pulled up. Clark yawned again beside me. Like a kid on a date, much like I was when I took Laney Sturgis to the prom, I got out and went around to get the door for him, though not quite as nervous. When I opened the passenger door, Clark almost spilled out. I grabbed his arm and steadied him. He used me to rise to his feet, then said, Got a good one, though I didn't know what he meant. I led him toward his door, wondering if he'd get out his keys or if we'd have to ring the bell. I didn't think I'd reach in his pockets to get his keys for him. I hadn't lived in L.A. that long. The front door opened before us, expensive-looking light spilling out. A tremendously fat Hispanic woman was standing there, a blue bathrobe of the thickest material I'd ever seen wrapped around her body. She put out her hand, but didn't deign to take a step outside. She looked like my dad did when I brought home a bad report card. She seemed a little more used to it, however. As soon as we reached the entryway, the Hispanic woman reached into her robe and pulled something out. She held it out to me as Clark took an uneasy step to grasp the door jamb and walk inside. I took it from her, already knowing what it was, but not knowing it was a $50 bill until I held it. Is that enough? she asked me. For what? I asked. Her voice was softer than her expression. Expenses, mijo. I, I uh, didn't buy anything. The woman, Virginia, I guessed, looked at me like I was an idiot. It was as if I had just told her I was going to move to the city to be an actor. It would have been funny if I saw it in a movie, but... The woman closed the door without another word. I sat there, staring at it, as I heard her ask something and heard Everett Clark say, Nothing. Nothing. I turned and went back to my car. The passenger door was still open. I waited another moment before closing it. In the reflective surface of my car, I saw Clark's front door open and the light spilling out once again. I turned. Everett Clark was sticking his head out. I could see the large blue form of his housekeeper standing behind him. You, uh, got a place to stay, Jeff? Clark asked. Yeah, I said, wondering who Jeff was. Okay, he said. I'll see you around. I turned away from him, not wanting to dignify that as a thank you.
I was just going to get in my cheap little car and go. Then I didn't. I turned around again. Ever, I began. Yep, the movie star said, as if it was a question. You were my hero, you know. Clark swallowed. I know, kid. I saw a sadness come over his face. Not a lot, not anything melodramatic or revelatory, but it was there. I couldn't see my own face, but I thought I was sharing that expression. I certainly was feeling it. Sorry, Everett Clark whispered. I nodded. I guess that was as good as it was going to get. And I was right. The moment was quickly broken. Thanks for the drinks, Clark said then, though I had bought him no drinks. And then he said, Say hi to Eddie and the girls, okay? Which was worse. I nodded again. Will do, I said. Good night, Mr. Clark. He didn't ask me to call him ever. He looked at me, and I thought, This guy's wondering how I ever got mixed up with a crazy group of free spirits like Eddie and the girls, or which one of my parents is famous, or maybe he's trying to remember where his car went. Good night, Nate, he said then, and slipped back into his house. The light was cut off, and I was left there in the glow of the halogen security lamps, smelling night-blooming jasmine all of a sudden from somewhere. There was a gate on the other side of the driveway, too. It opened automatically as I neared it. I drove home in silence. The window beside me was still down, and though the night had grown chilly, for L.A. anyway, I didn't roll it up. This had been a surreal experience. Not really something to write home about, but sort of that way. He got my name right at least, I said to the empty car. But had he? Had he really remembered my name, or was it just a lucky guess? A moment later, I realized there were tears in my eyes. For about two miles, I seriously considered packing it all up and heading back to Nebraska. It was an easier place to make a living. Maybe I will, I thought. Maybe that would be for the best. But not yet. I don't really have that much more to tell. I guess it's not that great a story, to be honest. I wish I could say that I made some kind of impact on my idol, and that he turned his life around, but in March of that year he was driving in Century City and scraped the side of a limo idling beside the road. The cops pulled him over a half mile away and charged him with driving under the influence of unspecified drugs. It was in some of the papers, but when he went into rehab as part of his plea bargain, that was in all the papers. Not long after, he got the role of the burnout father in routine maintenance, and his career was back on track. They called it his comeback role, as if he had actually gone somewhere or retired. 
I don't know if he changed his lifestyle around, or if he was just able to fool the press, but he looked better in interviews from the time. And sure enough, he won a Best Supporting Actor Golden Globe the next January. He would go on to lose the Oscar, but ah well. And of course, I was watching. As he hugged his director and new fiancé, heading up to accept, I have to admit that a little naive part of me wondered if he'd thank me. It would be just like a movie. But he didn't. I also wondered if someone gave him the opportunity to thank everyone who inspired him to get back on his feet, if he'd thank me then. Probably not. But still, Clark's speech was lucid and clever, and that was okay. You could feel the star quality radiating off this man, the talent, the charisma. It was impossible to look away. I knew that somewhere, maybe a lot of somewheres, kids were watching and thinking, Wow, Everett Clark is my hero. The end. Okay, so that was hero worship. Now, it it is a fictionalized version of how I felt encountering people that I had admired, people that I had looked up to, idolized in, in L.A. I, I didn't get to run into you know, everyone that I wanted to see, you know, the people that I that made me want to be in film. But I did encounter, you know, a couple like Bill Shatner, who I really admire, and a couple of screenwriters that meant the world to me, and uh, people like Ryan Reynolds that I would go on to admire greatly. I uh, was in line at In-N-Out Burger with John Favreau, and I talked to him briefly just because we were in line together, not knowing, you know, that he would go on to uh, make Iron Man and The Mandalorian and uh, do such great things in franchises that I loved. But, you know, it doesn't matter how much truth there is in this story. I'm sharing it just to illustrate the, you know, it's never wise to meet your heroes. That's an old dictum, right? Not sure if it's it's never wise, but never meet your heroes is what they say. It's because people are flawed. People are disappointing. People are not always nice. They're not always patient. They're not always on their best behavior. They're not always good. And you've certainly had... I'm going to say we. We have certainly had our eyes opened over the last number of years that celebrities, that people that we admire or love can be bad people or can be conflicting people. Somebody like Mel Gibson was probably one of the very first uh, where I had my eyes opened that, oh gosh, you know, he's he his persona is such a joyful family man, a decent man, and what's weird is I still like Mel Gibson, and I know you that you're not supposed to, and maybe that's going to be a through line in what I'm talking about right now. J.K. Rowling lost a number of fans by, you know, some of the things that she said, 
that were perceived as insensitive. But then she doubled down on it. You know, she was powerful enough to just be like, no, you know what? This is what I think or feel or believe. Deal with it. And a lot of people have fallen out of love with her over that. Gosh, I heard somebody just this month say, those Harry Potter books aren't even all that good. Which is absolute bullshit, dude. It's like the weather in Los Angeles isn't even all that good. Uh-huh. You can take your pick, right? You know, the, 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 the example that comes to mind for me is Joss Whedon. Wow. You know, in, in the mid-2000s, people were wearing shirts that said, Joss Whedon is my master now. And it seemed like he could do no wrong. Even when he failed, he was more beloved because of his failures because of his failings, because when, when we would hear that he had an inability to get along with executives, with producers, with the money people, with the people that made decisions, we thought, well, that makes me like him even more. And, you know, as more and more stories came out about his personality and now, or, or his, his character, I guess that's the word I'm looking for, it became harder to defend him. And, and I'm about to do so. The art that Joss Whedon made is still excellent. And gosh, this is going to be a terrible thing that people can hold me accountable for having said. The art that Joss Whedon made is still better than the art anyone else made. Despite the flaws in his character, despite the kind of person that it sounds like, he is. And how? How do you say something like that? How do you say that the best Marvel Studios movie was still made by Joss Whedon? That the reason Captain Marvel doesn't work as a film so well, I'm not going to say 100%, is because Joss Whedon was no longer involved in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How do I say those things knowing that a lot of people absolutely loathe Joss Whedon now. And his art is tainted in their eyes. Way back, about a decade ago, not quite probably, Big and I had Abby Hilton on That Gets My Goat. And we were talking about, I think Dan Pillsbury was the name of the writer who I really admired that turned out to be, you know, not great. Um, there was no Dan Pillsbury. It was Orson Scott Card we were talking about. And, you know, a lot of the ire that Card stirred up has sort of gone away. He's become a, a, a bit less relevant, too, as far as a creative force. But we explored that. We examined, well, what happens if the artist is problematic? Does that make the art problematic? And I'd say that in most people's minds, yes, it does. However, art can stand on its own. Yeah, I heard somebody recently say, well, that first Avengers movie, you know, it's not good because of Joss Whedon. It's good because of all these other people that worked so hard on it. And I guess you can say that, certainly. And if, you know, if that enables you to continue to like that movie... 
then yeah, sure, absolutely. I've never uh, particularly been a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, but uh, there was someone who's a, a big horror fan who had a YouTube channel that I was watching a video of where he was talking about horror in the pulp era. And he talked about H.P. Lovecraft's racism and his... Um, he discussed a little bit the problematic aspects of Lovecraft's personality. I guess I'll keep using that word in this episode. Uh, and then he came to the conclusion that despite the impact that Lovecraft's work made on the literary genre and the ripples that extend even today, because of the man's racism and negative aspects of his thought process or personality or, or whatever you want to say it, that his work does not deserve to continue. That you couldn't discuss The Color Out of Space or At the Mountains of Madness or the Cthulhu mythos or any of that without, without putting an asterisk on it saying, this was a bad man. And so his art cannot be considered 100% valid. And that really surprised me. Me, not being a fan of Lovecraft, felt tempted to leap to his defense and say, you know, a lot of these people grew up in another time where the mores were different. And sometimes I will talk about the language that my father used when I was growing up that you couldn't use today because only the worst people would speak that way. And, and, you know, as many issues as I had with my father, I wouldn't lump him in with the worst people, not by a long shot. There was a uh, article I read today about a film project that was going into production and Kevin Spacey was playing the lead in this film. And I thought, huh, well, that's really interesting. But the vast majority of the comments under the article were, oh, you know, because he's a white male, he gets a pass. Huh? You know, his, his, his period in the uh, penalty box is over, etc. Or, you know, I will not be supporting this movie. And the, the thing is, it was a very independent, low-budget movie. It showed, it was not a studio film at all. It showed how far he had fallen. And honestly, I, I feel like he's lucky to have gotten that work. But having said that, Spacey was an extraordinarily talented actor. And some of the roles that he performed in the past are timeless, excellent works of art. And how do you separate, you know, something like The Usual Suspects? which is just a fine, fine film with an, a jaw-dropping performance by Spacey. He won an Oscar for it. Directed by Brian Singer, who is also a problematic person in much the same way as Spacey. Should I destroy my copy of Usual Suspects? Can I cease to enjoy that movie? And for me, the answer is no. I, the art stands apart from the people that made it 
all of those Oscar-winning or Oscar-nominated films that Harvey Weinstein produced still exist. They are just as good as they were 10 years ago. But do they need to have an asterisk next to them? The greatest stand-up comedian of my lifetime, his career is pretty much over. And does that mean that he is no longer the greatest stand-up comedian? Is there an asterisk there? It is so hard for me to say definitively. So I can only say, for me. You watch an old... Oh, okay, The Cosby Show. I, I don't imagine there are any channels that are still showing The Cosby Show. But there's no denying what an impact Bill Cosby had on filmmaking, on African-American progress. You know what I mean? To be the titular star of the number one show in America had to have opened so many doors for so many people and been an inspiration for so many people. And are their accomplishments called into question? Are there, Do they need an asterisk? Anybody who, who went into comedy or filmmaking or stand-up or art because of Bill Cosby and then we find out what kind of man he was, what does that say? What does that say when your hero turns out to be less than? I should have just called this whole episode, either you die a hero, dot, dot, dot. There's the famous line. I'm just going to copy and paste it right here. That Two-Face says in The Dark Knight, in 2008, The Dark Knight, still the best Batman film ever made, where he says, oh, no, it's not Two-Face, it's Harvey Dent that says it. And Harvey says, either you die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Now, that's probably not a catch-all. It's probably not meant to stretch over everything in life, but it certainly seems to be the case with some of these performers, some of these actors, some of these directors. Their names come up over and over again. And and, and I also understand that entertainment journalism is a business and that if you can get people stirred up and talking and being like, oh, all shocked and clutching their pearls, that your ratings go up. You know, CNN does it. Fox News only does it. And it shouldn't surprise me that Access Hollywood or Entertainment Tonight does it as well. People in a position of power act out. They use that power. And a lot of times they use it unwisely. And if they get away with it once, then they'll do it again and they'll do it again. And eventually it crosses a line into the unforgivable. You know, there's that old dictum that if it bleeds, it leads. The tabloids, the entertainment press, loves to hear these stories. You take somebody, okay, who's the best example? I was going to say Tom Cruise, but boy, he jumped on a couch and he was persona non grata for a little while. Okay, Tom Hanks. Uh, uh, a celebrity so beloved 
Only my father could dislike him. I bet you a thousand dollars that if allegations that he was an a-hole, that he beat somebody up, that he molested a child or a girl or a Wilson the volleyball, the, that the entertainment press would be high-fiving, popping champagne, so, so excited that they have this story that everybody would be interested in, in reading and watching. And oh, they, they, oh, and they, they'd pray that it was true. Please let it be true. It's a thousand dollar bet I just made. Ah, that's, that's awful. And, and you know, it's awful for the people that love Tom Hanks, me included. It's awful for his victims. Not, not that he did any of these things. I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe we should put pointing fingers at, at somebody else. I, oh, Frank Langella the other day got fired from, uh, was it Fall of the House of Usher, a whole series that Netflix was doing. And they kicked him to the curb and then had to find somebody else to play Roderick Usher and reshoot all of those scenes. In fact, I think... That's why Mark Hamill couldn't make it to the Star Wars celebration in May is because House of Usher went over and I read uh, Deadline.com did an interview. It wasn't even an interview. They just let Frank Langella tell his side of the story. And I, I, (laughs) I'm sorry that I'm saying this, but my heart went out to him. Because I, I just, I felt like, oh, dude, dude, you blew it, man. You, you, even if this has been blown way, way, way out of proportion, and, and I'm not saying that it was, I'm not saying that he's not a, 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 whatever they used to call these dudes that would slap women on the butt and, and grope them on the subway and, you know, all that stuff, the things that you're not allowed to do anymore. And, 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 and uh, I hear myself. I can't imagine what you guys are thinking right now. I hear myself. It was never okay to do those things. But even if this had been blown way, way out of proportion, he was warned. He was taken aside. And then he overstepped again. And... We've all done dumbass things like that before. <laughs> I was going to say, let's change the subject. But that's what this episode is about. I mean, it could just be that somebody is an a-hole. It could be that Russell Crowe throws a phone. It could be that Christian Bale goes on a screaming rant while maintaining his American accent on the set of Terminator Salvation. It could be that Bruce Willis is is a huge knob. They have their excuses. They have their reasons. It was a bad day, et cetera, et cetera. It still sucks when you have idolized somebody. You really looked up to somebody. You really, well, maybe they have encouraged you or inspired you or made you part of who you are today. And that image cracks a little, that the idol tarnishes. It doesn't have to be actors. 
I mean, God knows this stuff happens with musicians all the time. It happens with sports stars all the time. It happens with politicians constantly. It seems like with politicians, it's par for the course. It happens with religious leaders. And a religious leader and a movie star are very similar. And I totally own that statement, if that one offends you. But you hear about these predatory pastors or priests or rabbis or scout leaders or whatever it is. And that's got to shake your faith in your faith or in humanity. Like I said, I want to change the subject, but <laughs> this is the subject. I, dude, I'll put a humdinger of a warning at the beginning of this one, okay? Um, I started the episode with, with a little help from my friends. That was the theme song to The Wonder Years, a show that I believe started in January of 1988 and then went until I didn't watch it anymore. One of the great television series of my lifetime. I spoke about it a little bit in the uh, Sleepless ga Sleepless Sleep 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 Talking Gal episode of this show where I talked about just like what an impact that show made on me and the age that I was and finding the DVDs I had Toys R Us which is no longer it doesn't exist anymore either and it making me want to share that story or maybe it made me want to finish that story i i can't remember except for to say that that show was one of the seminal shows for me it really opened my eyes for what filmmaking could be and nostalgia could be for for a time when i wasn't even alive and a lot of the draw of that show was fred savage the main actor who played Kevin Arnold, the, the child actor who played Kevin Arnold. And he is now persona non grata. He, he did a lot of directing. Uh, you know, we'd come back and do little guest spots here and there in acting roles. And um, allegations have arisen that his behavior was unacceptable. You know, the, the sexual misconduct thing that has arisen so much over the last few years. And he was fired from the remake, reimagining, whatever you want to call it, uh, of The Wonder Years, where he was an executive producer. And, um, well, I was going to say, and his career is probably over. You never know. But it, at this moment, it does seem like that's the situation. Does it change The Wonder Years? Does it change the character of Kevin Arnold? Does it change the way that that show would make me feel if I watched it now? Does it change the way I remember the show? And I think there's a very small yes there that you tend to be cognizant of things like that. They're in the back of your mind, but it's, it's, it's not everything. No, there are people who are genuinely bad. There are good people that do bad things. There are people in a gray area as well, I think. And 
what can you do? I'm, I'm currently writing a book called Balms and Sears, and in it I've been trying to finish this book that I started years ago, about six or seven years ago. And I'm getting close, actually. I, I really surprised myself. It was about 20,000, 25,000 words long when I picked it up again about a month ago or a month and a half ago. And now it's past 40,000 words, which is, is good. And it's about a boy named Alec who is, he is very empathetic. He cares about other people. He cares about the feelings of others. And his grandfather, who's raising him, thinks that he's a sissy, thinks that he is too weak, thinks that he needs to toughen up. And it has been difficult for me to know how much, how sensitive I can make Alec. My inclination is to go as far as I dare, to have Alec be a guy who is in science class and they're cutting up a frog and he, he weeps. Alec sees somebody on television get hurt playing basketball and he can't enjoy the show anymore, the game anymore. He's upset. Alec is sensitive beyond the level of a normal high school sophomore. My nephew, the four-year-old, was watching The Good Dinosaur the other day. And I remember commenting to Big Anklovich, in fact, that we did it on that, that Gets My Goat after we saw that movie together, of what a pussy Arlo was. And I use that word because it's a harsh word. It, is, it does not leave room for interpretation. I just, I, I was shocked by it because it went so far as to be repugnant to me. I couldn't feel sorry for Arlo anymore. He was pathetic. And I don't want Alec to be that way, but I do want him to be sensitive enough of a soul that you wince, that you go, oh no. And I've, I've gone in as I've been writing and tried to put him fighting with his emotions, you know, like, don't cry, you will not cry. And he's like, he could feel tears on the verge of filling his eyes. And he, he you know, he did not want to cry, you know, because high school is a merciless, awful place. Bullies would, it would be like chum in the water for bullies if there was a boy who cried at the drop of a hat. But honestly, what I want for Alec is that he's better than you and he's better than me because of his unique perspective of seeing pain in other people. He always cares. You know, he sees a homeless person and the rest of us look away. We focus on the road in front of us. Oh, let's change the station. Let's look at the radio. But he doesn't. He sees that homeless person and it just breaks his heart. That's what I want. But it, it, it's going to be hard to walk the fine line. And I, I think when I finish this thing, I'm going to have to send it out to a couple of people and let them read it with that in mind. Of like, I don't ever want you to lose sympathy for Alec. But I don't ever want you to say, yeah, this kid's fine. This kid's mentally all right. His grandfather wants to toughen him up. His grandfather wants to make him able to look at the radio and say, 
let's find a song that I like right now instead of looking at the homeless person, instead of looking at the person in the wheelchair, instead of looking at the bald child and saying, oh, what can I do to help them? And, and the grandfather, for feeling that, runs the risk of being a very unsympathetic character as well. And, and that is difficult. That's a challenge for me. I hope that I can pull it off. The reason I mention that is just, I think about Kevin Arnold or Louis C.K. or Bill Cosby, Brian Singer, Kevin Spacey, uh, Johnny Depp, Mel Gibson. And I can't help but feel sad. I, I, I'm going to say it. I feel sorry for them because they were beloved figures in pop culture and now they are infamous. They're, they're morality tales. They're something that people use as an example of what not to do, of what not to be. And that's sad. Fred Savage was an adorable kid, a very talented child actor, a child. And the stories are starting to surface that even when he was like 16 or something, you know, he overstepped or he had inclinations of, you know, of, of harassment or of using his position, you know, in a predatory way. And now it seems like it's over for him, like I said. And so I do feel sorry for him having had this career resurgence. And now it's over. There are different lines, obviously, different, different extents to which these people are culpable. You know what I mean? And, and, the, and the ones where it actually goes to court and you hear the testimony and all that, uh, you know, obviously those are more significant than the ones where, you know, someone complained to HR and now they're done. I'm not naive enough to think that these stories are just made up. My guess is everybody has skeletons. Everybody has done or said things that out of context are terrible, that in context might be embarrassing or iffy or damning. Things that they've done, things, I, you know, in life you make mistakes and in life you hurt other people. And sometimes you intend to do it. Sometimes you're just a dumb person that makes stupid mistakes. And then, you know, the consequences come. And I, I, I am struggling to deal with that. But because I'm an artist, because I'm a writer... I can put that stuff, I can channel those feelings into my art, into my stories. This story that I shared with you, Hero Worship, uh, what did the kids say? Scrotum. It's a scrotum. No? No, 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 not that one. Huh. A different one. It's not a great story. Right. No, it isn't. But it was heartfelt. It, the way I felt was the way I felt. And this experience of seeing these other icons, idols, role models, whatever, falling can 
inform my art. I, it's an interesting conversation. I'd like to have a conversation with other people about it. Because it's not always actors, you know, there's always musicians, sports figures that are getting in trouble. And you ask yourself, you know, can I still, do I like this person? What do I do with the baseball card I've got? You know, does it negate the things that they achieved? And boy, I, it's a really hard question to answer. And maybe you can't. You just have to try to answer it. You have to have the conversation. And that goes a long way toward deciding how you feel. I thank you for listening to this episode. It was not one that I intended to do, but now that it's done, I hope you don't mind that I put down in words. I have been Rich Outfield. Good night. Yes, yes. The show you have just listened to is produced under what's known as a Creative Commons 3.0 license, in which you are free to download and share the files as you like, but you cannot change them, take credit for them, or attempt to sell them. I wouldn't take credit for them either. Hey, Sean, if you're not going to help... Ah, I've hurt his feelings. Oh, and thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for his music. Now there's a real man. Thank you. What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you turn round and walk out on me? I suppose I'll keep using that word. <coughs> oh, fuck. Do you like death, sir? And then he heard the telltale sound that told him he'd been right to stop. The angry, the angry rattling of a snake. The angry rattling of a snake. No, nobody says rattling. Rattling is like a baby rat. The angry rattling of a snake. The snake made a whooshing sound in addition to the rattling and tightened its diamond-marked and tightened its diamond-marked coil in the way that they had and tightened its diamond-covered coil in the way that... No. And tightened its diamond-patterned coil in the way that they had, letting him know it's... In, and tightened its diamond-patterned coil in the way that they had, letting him know its intentions. He muted the music with us. He muted the music with a satisfying flip of a hard plastic switch. He muted the music with a. F he muted the music with a satisfying flip. He muted the music with a satisfying flick of a hard plastic switch. Now, it's on its way out. Hell, maybe already gone. I'm starting to miss it again. <laughs> Boy, <coughs> that's a hard voice to do. Talia, too, was feeling the stress. He knew she was because... He knew she was because... She, he knew she was because she tried to start the engine. And the... 
He knew she was because she tried to start the engine, and the car made an ear-splitting, grinding sound. Okay, come on. He knew she was because she tried to start the engine, and the car made an ear-splitting, grinding noise when she tried to turn the key over again. It was an awful sound.